It's the Asian Boxing Podcast. Asianboxing.info is the website. Scott and Colin with you back after a long, long hiatus. Scott, how are you doing today? I'm not dead. Um, but yeah, not bad. He's alive. Uh, how about yourself? I'm doing very well. In fact, you're not dead, Scott. You're famous. You were mentioned, and we're going to talk about the the huge card in Japan over the weekend a little bit later, but you were mentioned in the broadcast on that card. They said, Scott Graverman, Asian Boxing. They gave you a shout-out. It was very nice of Corey Edmund, wasn't it? It was, and boy, was that a great broadcast. Both Corey and Chris, very well prepared. Unlike any other American or Western-type uh, broadcast I've heard uh, when it comes to Asian boxing. When I've heard anything, Corey is sort of like the man for the research. It's actually bizarre we don't see it more often. And uh, a real shame we don't hear that sort of quality more often in, uh, in um, commenters. Yeah, I was very impressed. We're going to talk about Corey and Chris and that entire card in just a bit. But first, we've been off for a long, long time. So let's go back a couple weeks and let's talk about some of the bigger fights that happened. Let's start with uh, the guy who I used to call the GOAT. One of the greatest of all time, but now he has two losses on his record. What is going on with Juan Hang? I know uh, very controversial scorecards, but Juan Hang, another loss a couple weeks ago. Yeah, another loss to the man that beat him originally, Panya Padabtri. Um I, I think, to be honest, Juan Hang probably deserved both wins, but now at the age of 36, he's ancient for minimum weight. He can clearly still go, but I've got a feeling that perhaps someone in Thai boxing dislikes him or wants to push him Put him into retirement now, um, which is a shame because, again, I think he's still one of the very best at 105 pounds. But the three judges all hung, all hung the, uh, the last bout to Panya by scores of 117, Didn't reflect the nature of the fight. It's one of those where I guess the the powers that be in Thai boxing have made a decision that it's time that he walks away. I mean, they could have made it a little closer on the scorecards, you know, to make it a little bit more realistic. At least in, in their first fight, it was 115-113. That you can maybe believe, but 117-111. A little wide there, guys. Really, really harsh. <laughs> um, yeah, it's a, a shame because he's still one of the best in the division, but I can't see him getting a win in a rematch here. I can't get, see him fighting knockout, so... I think anything else that he wants to do, he's not going to have to wait for. I don't think he's, I don't think he's young enough to do any more waiting around. Still, still one of the goats in my book. It's certainly at one hundred and five pounds. Let's jump up three pounds more to the light flyweight division, where we saw the return of Ken Shiro Taraji. You have to add the Taraji now, which I, I don't know how I like it. Like I, I know that's his actual last name, but. Kenshiro was just really cool, the name in itself. Uh, Kenshiro gets his rematch against Masamichi Yabuki. This was actually a couple weeks before, or a week before Wanhang. And this time, he looked like the Kenshiro we've come to know and love. He looked like he was pissed off, and like he had a point to prove. And yeah, he was, I think that's probably the best I've seen him. He really did fight like a man with really nasty intentions. Really took the fight to Yabuki and just... Just walloped him around for a round and a half and eventually got the stoppage in round three. Really, really, really impressive. And I think that's the type of Kenshiro that can be anybody 
in the weight class. Scott, don't you think that possibly in their first fight uh, with his COVID bout that that probably hurt him? I know even his father was saying, yeah, we probably overlooked Yabuki and uh, maybe didn't think he was going to be that tough. But I do think that the COVID affected uh, his performance in that first fight. I think COVID certainly uh, affected his preparation for the fight. Um, he had to then lose a lot of weight, a sort of crash diet to make weight, and I think it all added up. I think, again, he probably overlooked Yabuki, and you don't want to make excuses for the guy. He's a world-class fighter, but there was a lot of pre-fight issues with uh, that contest. So he dusts Yabuki, and I saw somewhere where he was saying, I either want to unify or I want to move up. Uh, what's his next step? It's hard to say. Originally, before he lost to Yubuki, he wanted to set a Japanese title defense record. Um, he was aiming for the record of Yoko Gushiken. Now it appears that he's kind of, yeah, that dream is gone. I want to do something else. And you kind of hope sooner that we get that Kaigushi fight. It feels like it's been there to make for years. And I think this year, next year, are probably going to be the last chances before one, if not both, move up. And it feels like that's the fight to make. Why has that been such a hard fight to make? Uh, I know Kyoguchi signed with, with you know, Matchroom, so uh, maybe there's some type of promotion difference between uh, Kyoguchi and Shiro, but you would, you would think it makes sense. They're both Japanese. They both have belts. Just unify. You think even if Eddie Hearn was involved in Kaigushi, you could just brought Kenshiro over for that match. Especially when they've got the other 108-pound talent, like Elwin Soto and uh, Jonathan Gonzalez in the U.S. anyway, and Felix Alvarado. They've got these top names that fight in the U.S. Just make this belt and let the winner face one of them. It just it makes too much sense, and boxing gets in its own way far too often. When it does make sense, it seems like, oh, let's not do it then. It makes too much sense. So let's, uh, maybe let's not do it. I, I, I just, they're two of the best in the world. They're both from Japan. And I think people have been wanting to see this for a long time. It's weird. I don't really, um, to be positively about promise, but I think what PBC do is really good where they put on uh, usually two bouts from the same division to match those guys up in the future. Why are we not seeing that more often? Like we saw um, Tony Harrison and Garcia and Fundora Lubin. The obvious match there is to have those winners. If we start seeing that with more shows, we really build towards something. But no, it just seems like random bouts thrown on random shows. It's really frustrating. That's a great point that you make about PBC is, is they do stuff that makes sense. Winner fights winner. And, and they also are great at matchmaking because... Uh, you saw Fandora Lubin, and, and we've seen it many times where they just have absolute wars. Uh, they do a, a phenomenal job of matching up their fighters. Boxing's really starting to heat up now in, in the month of April and as we move on to May and June. And let's start with a, a massive card, a historical Japanese card in Japan, Super Arena Saitama, where... It just seems Saitama, that's where the magic is, Scott. That's where all the great fights happen. Triple G, Ryota Murata for uh, two belts, two middleweight belts, a unification title fight at the middleweight division in Japan. It doesn't get much better than that, does it? It doesn't get much better than that. It was a great card. 
it's bizarre that you just mentioned how all the great action that happens at the Super Arena, but amazingly, there wasn't a boxing card then like a decade before um, the drama in Satama, and now it seems to be the new go-to venue for big fights in Japan. Um, yeah, what a great card it was. Uh, right from the beginning, right through the sort of three televised bouts, they're all fantastic. Shuishiro Yoshino and Masayuki Ito kicking off the show. They really put on a hell of a fight. Absolutely brilliant fight. Fantastic chance for Yoshino to show what he could do. Um, Ito, I think, now is probably going to be retiring or certainly considering it, but Yoshino's, he now deserves a big international fight on the back of that brilliant win. You think he's going to come over to the West and, and maybe get that big international fight after beating a guy like Ito who who won a world title on United States soil? I think every U.S. promoter should be interested in bringing him over. Especially given the fighters we've got at 135 pounds in the US and the UK, um, I'd keep talking about how this guy can't get a fight or this guy can't get a fight. You know, Ryan Garcia can't get a good opponent. Devin Haney can't get a good opponent. Nobody wants to fight this guy. Bring a Shino of him. Let him in those sorts of bouts. Let him fight a Garcia, a Haney, a Jojo Diaz, a Williams Apida. You're gonna end up with a great fight if you. If you give him a chance, I think he'd really put on a really good TV-friendly fight in the U.S. It was his audition this past weekend, and he passed with flying colors. Like you said, it was an absolute war, a, a bloodbath. And both guys, you know, they gave great, great performances, even though Ito, his face uh, looked like he really lost by a big margin. It was a lot closer than, you know, his face looked. And I, I tip my cap to Ito, but Yoshino, just so skilled, has has heavy hands. Both both of his hands are pretty heavy, and like you said, I think he could make good fights with a lot of the top lightweight contenders um, in in the world. Yeah, even if he loses, if it's friendly enough, fun friendly, if it's exciting, people are going to prefer there to watching a twelve round show. Um, just sticking that about for a second, I also want to really praise Michiaki Samia, the referee, who is for my money the best referee in world boxing right now. He's just fantastic. Um, you saw him again, just let them fight. He didn't get himself involved. He didn't make the bout about him. He was there to basically get them to enforce the rules, but not to enforce himself on it. It's fantastic to see. The referees, the fans were great. The the broadcast, at least for us here on, on the in the West, watching DAZN, it was it was all phenomenal. And of course, the fights were great. Uh, Yoshino moves on with a big victory. And the next bout in, in the, on the main card, Junto Nakatani just looked phenomenal. The best I've seen him, actually, ever. Yeah, it was a, it was a strange one. For the first two, three rounds, he looked like he was going to get Yamaguchi out there at any point he wanted. He looked way out of a uh, completely different league to Yamaguchi. And then we saw Yamaguchi bite on his gum shield and try and make it into a fight. He wasn't good enough, but it went from oh, this could end any second to, oh, he's taking these shots really well all of a sudden. Um, and Yamaguchi's heart shone through, his desire shone through, but he's just completely outmatched by probably, for my money, the best fighter at 112 pounds. We've just seen a maturation in him. He's always been a great offensive fighter, and he fights well on the inside, especially for a tall man at that weight. But what I was impressed with was how he was transitioning from offense to defense and making a, a knockout guy like Yamauchi miss. That's what uh, impressed me about Nakatani was his defensive performance. 
Yeah, that no, was actually shown really well at the press conference he's at earlier today where he had a minor bruise in his left eye. He was like, didn't look like he'd been in a fight at all. It's just. And on the flip side, Yamauchi looked like he had been in a war after two rounds. Yamauchi looked like he needed to spend considerable time in hospital, to be honest. His eye was an absolute mess, but Ekatani, yeah, like he'd perhaps fallen in when playing golf or something. It's just bizarre how, how such an offensive fighter took so few shots in that bout. Great footwork, great head movement, and of course, the power, <laughs> it's going to carry past 112. I know Nakatani also said, hey, I want to unify, or I want to move up. Do you think he moves up right away after a performance like this? I hope not. I think he's still got another few good fights left at 112 pounds. I'd, lo- I'd love to see him in there against Sonny Edwards, but it's clear that he is going to move up at some point, just in case of when. Um, Do you think he could still make the weight comfortably? It looked like, at, at least in the weigh-in, it looked like he was really drained there. Maybe, but you got to remember he came in half pound under, so there's wiggle room there for him to play with. That's true. No, he came in pretty light. Though he did suggest he wanted to fight as high as super featherweight in the future to become a six-weight world champion, so... Wow. <laughs> um, maybe he moves up quicker, um, but I'd like to see him stay there for a little bit longer. Another couple of bouts. A unification bout, maybe a showcase bout in the U.S., and then move to 115. I mean, a six-weight world champion, if he's able to pull that off, I know we talk about the the historical performance of Kazuto Aoka. Of course, Naoya Inoue, who we'll talk about a little bit later, is is one of the best to do it. But if Nakatani can, can go through six weight classes, he he's going to be up there with those names. He's got the frame for it, and... Does he, he seems to have the power and the speed for it. It's just whether or not he has the chin for it, I guess. It'll be tested later on. Probably not at 112, but uh, when he starts to move up to, to 118 and 122 and, and beyond that, uh, it will be tested. Um, again, talking about boxing making sense. If boxing made sense, he would be on a Superfly style card later in the year or next year, hyping a potential bout against Ayoka or Gonzalez or Shrisuke or Estrada. Put on their undercut and let that bolt build quickly. Oh yeah, and we know that 115, at least for my money, best best weight class in boxing, deepest weight class, and they they make the fights there too. <laughs> it's not like lightweight or, or or welterweight where we see yeah, there's a lot of talent there, but the guys aren't fighting each other. No, not not at 115. They actually make the fights. Uh, Scott, final bout of the the evening there in Saitama. It was Triple G, Murata, and really, I, I kind of expected it to go this way, uh, but it didn't disappoint. The fight was, it was fun. Yeah, I was expecting it to be a bit more of an inside battle than I think we saw. Um, I think Golovkin fought a bit too smart for that sort of fight. He played it sometimes up close, but was more happy to take a step back. He's happy to create a bit of space, use his room, use his footwork. And unfortunately for Murata, he never really had an answer to Golovkin's feet. Pressed forward and pressured, but it was never quick enough. And um, it became a case of his bravery against Golovkin's power in the end. And eventually the power won. But fantastic fight, especially the first four rounds. It's always been the guy that Murata is. is he? You love his heart. You love his tenacity. Uh, but he's just never been the most skilled fighter and and that's coming from an olympic gold medalist uh, but a guy who just never 
incorporated the left hook, especially um, earlier on in his career. And, and, you know, he started to throw left to the body, which I really loved, especially early on in the fight. And he was, you know, effective with that left hook to the body. But never has been a combination puncher either, which eventually, like you said, Golovkin was just too much. Uh, but I love the scene after where Triple G out of respect, gives Murata his robe, and he doesn't do that to, to many fighters or many of his opponents. No, there was so much respect. Even beyond that there, um, there's a point where Golovkin walked into Murata's uh, changing room to hand the belt back, the physical WBA belt, and you see the respect from them chatting after that, and um, it makes a really, really big difference to the usual shit-talking we hear far too often on Twitter and between fighters that it's not needed. If you have genuine dislike, fine. But don't just try and create some beef. You don't need it. Sport doesn't need it. Sport can do really well when two guys are just good guys. Sometimes it's almost forced. Uh, you you see fighters at the weigh-in and they start pushing each other and jawing at each other. And it almost seems a little forced. I, I agree with you. Uh, I almost like it when two opponents can respect each other, get in there and really, you know inflict some punishment on each other and then after the fight you're friends or you can respect the man that you got in there with for for 12 rounds or however many rounds you fought uh against him and honestly uh looking at Murata's face it looked like he had been in a 15 round bout because he was he was battered he was bruised but um I tip my cap to Murata and I know he made all of Japan proud with his performance he, he lost but he acted like a champion yeah, they both acted like champions um, right throughout from when the bout was first announced last year to when it was delayed to when it was finally rescheduled and then right through. Um, even today, Glovkin's over there still and he looks like he's enjoying Japan still. And they Took a picture with like a cherry blossom? Was that was that what I saw? Yeah, yeah. It's just, again, you wouldn't see that from certain fighters. <laughs> Can you imagine, you know, Deontay Wilder taking pictures with cherry blossoms? <laughs> you don't need to be a dickhead to sell yourself in this sport, and I think that's fantastic to see Golovkin going from what was it, two hundred thousand you got paid to fight Makoto Fushigami in twenty twelve to uh, approximately twelve million dollars for this fight. Go for it, you know, that's brilliant. It's a big, big drama show. <laughs> yeah. Triple G, we know he he's probably going to move on and fight Canelo at least that's those are the plans but for Murata is this is was that his swan song is he he done now he's not sure uh he gave a interview at a press conference and basically said for now I'm going to sit down rest and see how I'm going to feel um he was in a bit of pain but nothing major uh, just sort of bruised bumps and things but a good rest and then I think you'll Probably decide maybe one more swan song bout to leave the spot, maybe. It's the Asian Boxing Podcast. Asianboxing.info is the website. It's Scott. It's Colin. Scott, one more uh, bout I wanted to look at before we move on to to looking ahead. Uh, But this past weekend, uh, Marlene Esparza fought Naoko Fujioka. And Fujioka, she is 46 years old. Uh, the scorecards were not indicative of how close this fight was. What a war. 
And Fujioka, I tip my cap to her because she is an absolute warrior. She's a legend, a genuine legend. The only five-weight world champion in Japan. She's for a genuine who's who of the lower weights of the sport, such as Susie Kentucky and uh, Shindo Go, Jessica Chavez, Mariana Juarez. This woman's travel for big fights in um, Mexico, Germany, USA. Uh, someone who is really unfortunate that women's boxing got big when she got old. Um, I think she turned professional at like the age of 35 or something. The career she's carved out has just been absolutely astonishing. Um, really, really, really shameful from the judges, but it's Texas. What do you expect? It's boxing. What do you expect? Yeah. Um, just on that card in general, how bad was the judging and the refereeing on that entire show? Judge had Mozzie Rosado even. What the hell were they watching? James Green, DQing Patrick Texieri for what? It's just appalling. And um, I'd like to see some of those officials mean forced to explain what the hell they were doing. That whole card was, it wasn't that great, first of all. We saw uh, the main event was a huge mismatch and bore of a fight. I, I wish I was, well, I was at work, so I was just kind of keeping my eye on it. Um and I wasn't able to catch the Showtime fight between Lubin and Fandora, which was, by all accounts, way better. Uh, That's they were the fight of the year. That was genuinely brilliant. Yeah, yeah. So I wish I was watching that, but I was at work. The stranger that on that card, there's a really, really good boy, uh, good performance by Azat Hovaniskin and Katsumi Akitsugi, who both probably deserved a lot more praise than they got. They were both fantastic scoring wins. Spanish speaking. Spanish speaker. From Japan. You hear him speak Spanish? I've not heard him speak Spanish, but his uh, his record is slowly creeping up as one of the most underrated in the sport. He's taken like four or five unbeaten records. Really, really, really good fighter. I think he's been working on it. He was he was speaking to uh, one of the reporters, Beto Duran, who works for Golden Boy. And, you know, they kind of talked about how he loves the Mexican culture and, and he started to speak Spanish and he was he was pretty good at it lives in California. Um, yeah, I think he's on to keep an eye on. Well, Scott, let's look ahead. It was a great weekend of boxing. First couple months have been dead, but March started to, started to make some noise, and now April, a lot of, a lot of great boxing. But looking ahead, boy, are we in for a couple of big fights. Masataka Tanaguchi uh, versus Kai Ishizawa. Now, this fight is actually right around the corner. It's uh, a couple weeks from now, and Kai Ishizawa just trying to uh, get some revenge uh, after the first time they fought was, what, that was a couple years ago now. Um, but now Masataka Tanaguchi on top of the world with that, that minimum weight title, Kai Ishizawa wants it back, or he wants some revenge, and he wants to win that title. Um, he actually doesn't care about the title, apparently. <laughs> Really? A few weeks ago, and said, I couldn't care about the title, I just want revenge. <laughs> so that's the sort of attitude. Um, I love it. Taniguchi has. He's interesting, a stable of Junto Nakatani's, and their gym's on fire right now. So there's a lot of momentum, a lot of confidence coming into this belt. He smashed the living snow of Katsuki Mario this year. And I said that's probably his best performance. So he's definitely getting a lot better. 
As for Taniguchi, he's constantly sky high following his title win against Wilfredo Mendez last year. Yeah, this one could be a bit of a sleeper classic. It could be an instant hit for, an instant hit for the uh, the fans able to watch it. Kosei Tanaka today just announced that he has his next bout. Who's he going to be facing? He'll be facing Masayoshi Hashizumi, who is the WBO Age Pacific and OPBF Super Flyweight Champion. He won those titles earlier this year and will be defending the WBO regional belt against uh, Tanaka on June 29th at Corican Hall. Um, it's one way he got a fair Tanaka, obviously, but this is only the second time he's fought at the at, uh, Corican Hall and Hashizumi's unbeaten. He is very talented himself and he's naturally a bigger fighter, so this should be, should be a really, really interesting one. And finally, Scott, you mentioned the drama in Saitama. We're going to get another drama sequel Ooh, i like that the sequel in saitama just came up with that off the top uh but the drama in saitama too Ooh, okay there you go i like that uh, and you mentioned saitama not a lot of events what in the past decade but in the span of three years you get the drama in saitama you get triple g murata which probably is one of the biggest boxing events ever in japan and then you get the drama in Saitama 2, which was announced a couple weeks ago. This fight, we'll be talking about it for weeks to come, but taking a quick preview on June 7th, Naoya and Noe, Nonito Donaire, they run it back. Boy, am I excited for this one. Yeah, it's. I think this one actually has more behind it than the first one. The first one was part of the World Boxing Super Series, um, in New Year was on fire. He blasted out his opponents uh, en route there. But going into that first bout, it was assumed that Denard got there quite luckily. He'd faced Burnett, who'd put his back out. He'd faced Stephen Young, who'd taken the bout of short notice as a villain. This time he's coming in on big wins against Nordina Bali and Remar Gabalo. He smashed the snot out of both of them. He has that confidence, that air, and there is no kind of going, well, there's three asterisks near that win, and uh, he wasn't very good. He's just taken two unbeaten records in brilliant fashion. Um, he wants revenge. He wants to prove that he's still a great force at his age. Inouye wants to prove that he is the man at bantamweight. Both of them want to prove that Casemiro is you know, not interested in facing the best. And I think this is probably not going to be as compelling as the first bout in the ring, but the story going into it is much bigger, much better, much more exciting. We're so quick to write off great fighters. Uh, And it's just, I mean, it's just the nature of, I think sports in general, we look at an old guy and say, well, he's done. And it it happens everywhere. In football, Tom Brady, everyone wanted to keep on saying he was done. Well, he won a couple more Super Bowls after that. It's the same thing in boxing. Manny Pacquiao, oh, he's done. He's done. Oh, he lost to Marquez. He's done. Well, he... He came back and won a couple more world titles. Uh, Triple G, oh, he's 40. He's done. He just unified the middleweight division. Nonito Donaire is not done. I don't care how old he is. Uh, you mentioned it. His last two performances were brilliant. And I will still be on the edge of my seat for this one. Uh, the first fight, yeah, I was like, ah, I know he's going to be too much for him. But 
I think the big difference is one, you have an experienced fighter in Donaire, and I know Inouye's, you know, he's in his prime, he's in his peak, but Donaire, the size difference between the two, Donaire can use his size to his advantage. He still has huge punching power. He's even a smarter fighter than he was when he was 28, 29. Uh, this has the makings to be a really competitive fight. Um, I still have Inoue winning it, but it, it's going to be a good one, Scott. Yeah, I have Inoue winning probably by stoppage from a body shot. I think he's really unlucky to be denied last time by um, Ernie Sharif with his body tackle and slow count and it's like garbage that came in with that on. But Daener is the smartest Daener that we've seen. He is realizing that he's not got the speed. He's not got the footwork anymore. Um, but he's got the boxing brain. He's got the IQ. He's got the relaxed nature. He can see things coming, and his timing is still brilliant. If he knew he makes mistakes, especially after what happened last time with his uh, orbital and the injuries that came with that, there, if he makes mistake, he could end up questioning himself. He could end up facing that sort of um, dilemma again. How do I fight with one eye? Um, but yeah, Dana's incredibly powerful, incredibly big, incredibly strong. We've written him off so many times. Same with Gabriel Sato being another great example. And whilst he knew he's fantastic, he's not untouchable. And Donaire can certainly do damage when he touches somebody. Donaire, especially at the lower weights, I don't want to say especially. I mean, there shouldn't be a distinction. He's just an all-time great. He's he's up there with, with the best of the best to ever do it, to ever lace him up. And so you have to put respect on his name, and you see all these people saying, oh, look at Inouye fighting another old Donaire. No, he's fighting a Hall of Famer, first ballot Hall of Famer, who jumped all the way up to featherweight and knocked down a very good Nicholas Walters. Donaire is dangerous. Donaire is, again, a Hall of Famer, and um, this is kind of the opponent that Inouye needed <laughs> because – the past couple of fights for Inoue were subpar, and it's just because his competition was not up to the standard that we've come to expect from Inoue. Yeah, and these two are a lot like Golf and Murata. They're just respectful guys. People want to watch this ball, and they don't need to put some fit beef in there. They don't need to lie, and they go, oh, I hate you. No, they respect each other. They're big fans of each other. Um, and you can have a fight where you're respectful. You are sports people at the end of the day. You're not thugs. Two class acts, two great fighters, one night in Saitama, the drama in Saitama 2, as you have dubbed it. So mark that down on your calendar. Very early morning for me, but I will wake up. It's a bloody Tuesday. <laughs> right? Why do they have to do it on a Tuesday, though? Out of all days, Tuesday, a work day, and we have to wake up early to watch it. Well, I, at least I do. In England, you guys are fine. It's perfect for you. Yeah, yeah. yeah but we just since Saturday's perfect time. Golovkin and Samarata prove what they can do on Saturdays. Right? Make it on a Saturday, Japan. Be better than that. Maybe reschedule. Put forward a couple of days. Come on. We can wait. We can wait. It's the Asian Boxing Podcast. Asianboxing.info is the website. If you love Asian boxing, like Corey Erdman, Chris Algieri. They obviously went to your website, Scott. Must have done. Um, yeah, Corey is someone who is a fantastic researcher, and he 
I think he's probably the only person who was reading articles from behind pair walls to do commentary um, for his research. He was getting articles from BoxMob to read, and his level of understanding of what's going on is just second to nobody. Um, and it's real, real shame that nobody else even comes close. It was the first time I had heard him, and while I was listening in the first couple of fights, I, I was like, I have to find out who this is because he is phenomenal. He is on top of it. He had so many great stories about, you know, oh, Junto Nakatani, uh, he makes his own, you know, uh, meals, or he was in karate, or and then, you know, stories on all the different fighters. He did his research, and Chris Algieri, same thing. You can tell he watches the fights. He's not just a guy who looks at box rec and says, okay, well, he lost to this guy. One of the... No, he, he, he went back in the archives, and he watched the fights. What a great team, and I hope DAZN brings them back for another card because what they did was was honestly one of the best broadcasts I've seen in a long time because it's it's hard to get good broadcasters and uh, <laughs> on the boxing scene. There's a couple that I really like. I love Tim Bradley. I think he's honest. I think he tells it like it is, but it, it's it's hard to find a great team, a great duo anymore like that. Yeah, the only one I think actually also includes Chris Algieri when he worked with Christina Poncher. I thought they made a fantastic Ooh, team as well. Very good. Very good. But they weren't even the main team usually. They're like on ESPN+. Plus. They were the international broadcast team. Yeah. So get Corey Erdman, get Chris Algieri on more of these fights to zone. No offense to uh, Chris Mannix, but... Uh... I don't think we need to do any offense to Chris Mannix. I think he does it every time he opens his mouth. Oh. <laughs> Seems like a good guy. It's just it's it's a tough listen. It really is. <laughs> we can we can have a whole another podcast on broadcasters and boxing. Do they do their research? Bring back Steve Holsworth. I'm not sure half the listeners to this will even recognize him, but Steve Holsworth used to do EA, uh, Eurosport, and he was just hypercritical. Everything is brilliant. A very cynical old man. We need more of that. It's been the Asian Boxing Podcast with Scott and Colin. No cynicism on this show. We're all positive. We love Asian boxing, and we appreciate you for listening to us today here. Talk to you next time.